Hello. Good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Tonight we are live in the studio Breaking Bad with Dave Sermon, Esther Milne and Ian Goldstone. If you're listening to the podcast, welcome also. It is Thursday, October 21st, 2010. I would like to introduce our panel for this evening. We have Dr Esther Milne. Dr Milne teaches across a range of subjects in the media and communications program, including text and contexts, reading, writing and criticism, issues in electronic media and literature media project. Esther's research interests span new media, 19th century networks of communication, the postal history of networked intimacy, effect and presence, distributed identity and effect, and the production of celebrity and its techno-institutional frameworks. Her publications include her book, Letters, Postcards, Email, Technologies of Presence and Articles, Images of Celebrity, Publicity, Privacy, Law, Magic Bits of Pasteboard, Texting in the 19th Century, and I Never Read Anything I Haven't Written Myself, Celebrity Blogging, just to name a few. So please welcome Esther. And on the right side here, we have Ian Goldstone. Um, He's an animation director, writer and co-founder of Pachinko Pictures. A native of New York, Ian has spent the last decade in London and has recently relocated to Melbourne. He spends his time making films and animated content for a wide range of clients and in 2007 won the BAFTA for his uh, his short animated film Guy 101. More recently, he has been working on a range of projects for clients including Vogue Japan, Vogue Japan, Microsoft Game Studio and Oxfam. So welcome in to uh, Acme and also to Melbourne. And in the middle we have David. So David is an artist and designer. Over the past 10 years he has worked in many different creative environments. As an animator, David worked in the theatre producing projected works that interacted with stage and performers. As a concept and story artist, he has assisted in the development of commercials, animation and games, creating characters, stories and action for a wide range of clients, including Microsoft Game Studios, Michelin and the Nike Company. So please welcome our panel for this evening and um, just note that they're not the experts in meth cooking themselves. So thank you. Okay, so I think I'm kicking off the proceedings. Um, what's up, bitches? I promise not to do any more urban vernacular. I'm going to actually leave that to Ian, who sounds a lot more authentic than me. So I'm going to look at Breaking Bad as an instance of what's been called cinematic TV, or long-form narrative. It's part of what we might call the HBO genre, although it's produced by Sony Films through AMC Cable Channel in the US. It prim- uh, Breaking Bad premiered on January the 20th, 2008, and as of 2010, three seasons comprising 33 episodes have aired. So today I want to talk about this wider televisual context that in turn I hope will provide a critical framework through which to understand what I think are kind of intensely immersive areas of characterisation and spectator identification that is offered by Breaking Bad. Um, The motivation for discussing this immersive aspect was revealed in an evocative screen-shouting narrative sequence. But by this I mean it was actually me shouting at the screen. It's at those times that one realises there's a significant narrative gesture occurring. 
emerging from the music hall days of Behind You, I suggest we all recognise or indeed perhaps participate in this practice, which paradoxically and not a little creepily happen more when one is alone. My shouter moment occurred during one of the many scenes where Skylar is, either and variously, complaining, kvetching, pouting, passive-aggressive rather than zoot magazinally, also disapproving, censorious, sighing, self-righteous, just all round being hard done by. I would argue that this dramatic labour performs a highly moral function. That is, she and many of the female characters seem to carry the moral weight of the program. Not all of it, of course. I think David Sermon on our panel makes an important point when he says that Jessie is used narratively in a similar fashion, and he might talk more about that later. I'd also note that Vince Gilligan, the show's creator, emphatically does not talk about Skylar in this manner. He has nothing but praise for her. But I think that this raises an interesting point when many fan sites and, anecdotally, discussions with our host, self-confessed BB tragic Anna Svedberg, revealed widespread condemnation for her. And I think that's what's so great about theories of spectatorship uh, or empathy, showing how the relation between author and reader is always a site of struggle. Okay, so thinking more widely about the narrative role performed by the female characters then demands a discussion which would focus specifically on how women are represented in Breaking Bad. And taking a rest from shouting, I scribbled down a note in, yes, quite a strident tone. But why do I have to do that work? Why do I have to be the one, as the only female on the panel, to do this particular version of moral representational labour critique? That's actually a new branch of the Trades Hall Council, I realised. As I put that phrase together, I was like, really? But why can't I talk about guns and shit, drugs, pipes, death trap ATMs? Now, all of this presupposes a critical point. Why should it matter how anyone or thing is represented? It matters because, quite simply, spectators feel for characters. The banality of this statement, however, belies its profound narrative power. And that power is exerted through the complex process by which immersion and identification occur in the constant emotional traffic that I would think happens between character and audience. And this is something I'll return to. First, though, a few quick comments about cinematic TV, or what I'm calling the HBO effect. Although it began in 1972 as a cable channel for airing quality programs, HBO didn't start producing its own shows till 1997 with Oz and then in 1999 with The Sopranos. Its productions include Six Feet Under, Sex and the City, True Blood, Deadwood, The Wire and Rome. From about 2001, other cable channels also began producing these long-form dramas. For example, the cable network FX makes The Shield, Damages, Rescue Me and The Riches. Interestingly, FX's slogan, there is no box, could be read as both homage to and a sideswipe at home box office, whose own long-standing slogan, it's not TV, it's HBO, has recently been replaced by it's more than you imagined. And this for me, apart from being pretty lame, but usefully, sums up a defining feature of the HBO effect, which is what we might call hyper-empathy, a real insistence on the imagined other. And this works across a number of levels. First, of course, there's the standard identification of audience with character. But also this process itself gets mirrored at the level of mise-en-scene, narrative and the industry elements of the franchise. In other words, what I'm arguing that is distinctive about HBO-esque drama is its capacity to rehearse the strategies and rules, if you like, of spectatorship internally and externally to the fictive world. 
So, for example, there are quite intense bonds that emerge between scriptwriters and fans, and then again between actors and scriptwriters, and finally between the creator and lead. So I want to show a clip now that I think focuses on these shifting empathies, but in a typically self-conscious and mannerist style. And just before we do a quick word on spoilers, we are showing clips from season three. I actually got an email from Acme um, saying that an audience member, and maybe you're here, I don't know, so I'll be careful, but an audience member had phoned up to find out whether there were any spoilers here, which is either really hardcore or really, really wet of them. Like, you're just, you know, harden up. But, but, <laughs> so apologies if you're out there storming out. Um, so what I think we're going to try and do is, um, I mean, basically it's on Foxtel now anyway, like season three. So I think we're not going to worry too much about it. But this one, actually, it's from the first um, episode of season three. And unhappily for the inhabitants of this particular um, clip, it doesn't really, they don't matter anymore. So it's not really a spoiler. Um, I think we can go to it now. Thank you.
Okay, so um, <clears throat> that episode obviously involved um, those guys who were trying to sneak across the US-Mexico border into Texas. Uh, that episode was written by Vince Gilligan and directed by Brian Cranston and continues the vendetta of the Mexican drug cartel against Heisenberg. Um, one of the interesting aspects about the scene was um, the, the, both the director and the writer's insistence that it not use CGI. In an interview, they discussed how the cousins, who hilariously are actually brothers in real life, but when you first see them in the series, you think that they're brothers. And they, at the beginning, I think they get called the twins, and then they get called the cousins. But they are actually brothers in real life, so that's hilarious. But I'm sure you guys, as complete Breaking Bad nerds, will have far more um, arcane references than that. Um, OK, so, so um, in an interview, they discussed that... Um, the, uh, the, they were insistent that it not contain CGI and that they were 60 feet from the truck but a long lens was used on the camera to make it appear even closer. So I know that David's going to talk about the cinematography and photography so he, I don't know, he might mention, talk about that in a bit more detail. So for me a significant feature of HBO is a focus on spectator engagement and identification with character and here I think in this clip um, we can see another reason for understanding the HBO effect as cinematic TV. HBO borrows from the history of film and literary theory to reintroduce some ideas which have, in the wake of postmodernism, kind of fallen out of favour. It was nigh on impossible during the late 90s and early 2000s to read any theory, whether literary, cinematic or cultural, about characterisation. If you wanted intellectual ostracisation from the hipster theorists of the day, you just had to say something like, that's a well-rounded or complexly drawn character. To do so resulted in an immediate expulsion from the whole of North Fitzroy and the John Medley building at Melbourne Uni. The rejection of these notions of characterisation, of identification, I guess was un understandable. The idea was that it was incredibly bourgeoisie because it seemed, it assumed a kind of unified world and... Uh, narrative closure and so there was no room for diversity or ambiguity in the messy realities of real world narrative. But I think that this clip really shows the complexity uh, of the process of spectatorship. Specifically what I love about this sequence is, is the quite sophisticated conceptual movement between real empathy we might feel and then a kind of knowing parody of that empathy. So there's a real feeling of shock for the people in the truck since they've been personalised by that young guy. But this is parodied by the super-studied cool languor of the cousins. The HBO effect, an awareness of the complexity of characterisation, is shared across many of its products and is often demonstrated by an intense focus within the mise-en-scene on screen culture. So, of course, there's an extremely high use of intertextual quoting. Sopranos and Breaking Bad quote The Godfather, for example but also an awareness of the technological specificity of screen culture and the cinematic apparatus. Both Sopranos and Breaking Bad feature extended sequences where the characters buy or discuss huge screens, plasma screens, or indeed the business of char character development itself. And Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos is exemplary in this regard. So he goes to acting class and then beats up a guy for real while he's just rehearsing. In Breaking Bad, of course, many of the episode titles are quotes from films. Fargo and Cool Hand Luke, for example, from the first series. So within theories of immersion, the screen is pivotal. Much gets made, for example, in classic psychoanalytic theory about how the screen or interface more generally plays a particular function within conditions of perception. Shrouded and protected by the dark of the cinema, we feel singularly addressed by the screen in an incredibly intimate manner. 
In other words, to use a well-quoted phrase, the audience ceases to exist for the individual spectator. This is a way of saying that in order for a film to take hold, for suspension of disbelief and so on, we have to stop thinking of ourselves as an audience, but instead as directly addressed by the screen. And some forms of film theory make quite sharp distinctions between the cinematic experience and, the, and that offered by the domestic TV settings. I'm disagreeing with this. Long-form narratives such as these offered by Breaking Bad encourages an intense level of commitment to the screen. As David remarked recently on a radio interview, the whole boxed set and settling down for what he called an indulgent weekend speaks to the intensely pleasurable, but also, I would add, slightly clandestine relations one now has with the domestic screen. The HBO effect, then, demonstrates that the screen functions both as technical object and as signifier. In other words, I'm suggesting that we don't treat the screen as merely an interface, uh, an invisible transparent window to the action, but, if you like, just as much a character of the series and more widely the genre. The flat screen plays an important narrative role in Breaking Bad, as I think is illustrated nicely by these next two clips. So these come from season two. The first involves Jesse's gang. I, don't, I really don't think I can say crew. <laughs> at his new crib. And this is followed by a clip from episode seven, that's two episodes later than the one I'm showing, where Jane and Jesse get together via the screen and his failed attempt to get cable. Exceptions. 
Shortly, you're out. Cut it, you're out, period. This is a big opportunity I am giving you. Understand. Badger, what is this? Um, a big opportunity. Exactly, all right, this is the ground floor. Gentlemen, how far you go is up to you. So bring out the product, yo. No, 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 not here, all right, not ever. Blind drop, I will let you know when and where. flat screen.
Um, so in, just in case you don't know, DBAA stands for don't be an asshole, which is what Jane tells Jesse when he moves in. And I, so I like the idea of that spiralling effect of language, characters quoting each other. And that's what strikes me about these scenes, the beautiful use of language and dialogue. And again, this is a hallmark of the HBO effect, a kind of celebration in the elasticity of language, its beauty and humour. Because cinematic TV is so visually sophisticated and compelling, somehow the dialogue has to compete, almost as if to get noticed in the lush visual aesthetic. It has to foreground its immersive qualities. And of course, Vince Gilligan became well known for his script writing on The X-Files and interestingly, the first season of Breaking Bad was materially affected by the 2007 writer's strike. Apparently, they had two more episodes to go, which got shelved, a fact that uh, Gillian says helps help the overall tempo of the series not ending on too high a high well the meth heads of course so I just want to show one final really short clip and then come back to me and um, then I'll introduce Ian the signature characteristic of uh, our sorry. sorry I'm going to start over hey get out of here the most persistent one I've ever seen. Nice. Now, where were we? That was very impressive, wasn't it? I got this, I got the second. What do you think, Gibbs? That is very good. It's on, it's right there, right there. You want to film it? There it is. Um. <laughs> okay, that's it. Um. Okay, so I guess that was like a, a kind of a bleak reference. I don't know whether anyone's people have seen the third series, but that's an oblique reference, I guess, to the fly episode. And I also like this clip because Obama looks pretty much like President Bartlett from The West Wing, and I really <laughs> like that kind of um, kind of uh, mirroring effect. And the fly episode, if, you see, if you've seen it, is both intensely about characterisation and dialogue and the relationship between Jesse and Walt, but also importantly, it draws attention to science and technology, which um, this is going to be one of the topics of Ian's talk. So, thank you. So uh, coincidentally, and there was no planning going into this whatsoever, right, Esther? Um, <laughs> President Obama is the starting point for what I'd like to talk about today. Um, so during his inaugural speech in January 2009, uh, President o Obama promised to reprioritize science, saying, for everywhere we look, there is work to be done. The state of the economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act, not only to create new jobs, but to lay a new foundation for growth. We will build the roads and bridges, the electric grids and digital lines that feed our commerce and bind us together. We will restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise health care's quality and lower its cost. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories. And we will transform our schools and colleges and universities to meet the demands of a new age. All this we can do and all this we will do. So, Although Breaking Bad's first season may have preceded Obama's call to robotic arms, I think it definitely reflects this shifting attitude towards science across America and the rest of the world. So 
Perhaps we've been so badly burned by the latest financial crisis caused by their sort of smoke and mirrors tactics that we're looking for something tangible that we can trust. And I think that science has started to fill that hole. So regardless of the reason, this shifting attitude towards science is definitely giving us better dramas. So, of course, Breaking Bad is not the first time that storytelling and science have overlapped so heavily. Uh, Back in the 1930s, after emerging from the Great Depression, America was experiencing a a science and technology boom. Uh, There were 358 types of cars in production and brand new highways to zip along, air-conditioned skyscrapers, ocean liners, prefab homes, new plastics, lightweight steels, and people were absolutely loving it. They couldn't get enough of it. So it was the writer's job to pull up the slack there, and they created what Isaac Asimov called a golden age of science fiction. So I'd like to run my first clip, please. 38 is a watershed in the history of science fiction. Perhaps the most important, after 1926, when magazine science fiction first began, Gernie Spike's amazing. John W. Campbell Jr. became editor of Astounding Stories in 1937. Prior to 
significantly succeed in creating. Okay, so uh, thanks, Isaac. Um, so uh, I guess we could debate about whether or not Breaking Bad is actually a science, a science fiction. Um, I think that there's probably a lot of people in this room who could probably uh, knock me out in that debate anyway. But um, I think it's pretty undeniable that Breaking Bad is, to some extent, a celebration of science and technology that we're actually all hungry for. Um, and I, I don't know how much uh, you guys know about the actual production of the show, but... Um, uh, in the process of writing the first series, they actually had a really low budget, and uh, Vince Gilligan had to get science consultancy wherever he could, and oftentimes had to do it for free. He was writing to journals and uh, asking high school teachers for their thoughts on chemistry and how to build explosions and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so he was uh, really resourceful, but to him, like getting the science right was uh, really important. Um, so anyway. On a personal note, last night, 2 a.m. Melbourne time, 10 a.m. Cupertino time, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, tuned into a live news feed of Apple's latest event called Back to Mac. Um, and what were they unveiling? It was a couple of new MacBook Airs and an incremental update to their operating system. That's it. <laughs> um, but as a tech lover, you know, I must admit that at that time in the morning, I was under the covers reading the Engadget live blog um, on my iPad. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's amazing that so many people are, are tuning into just uh, these incremental uh, tech announcements, just feeding off these sort of, like, uh, micropayments of, of tech, in a way. Um, so anyway, uh, millions of people are tuning into these product launches, and zillions, if not quabillions, are entering... <laughs> are engaging with new science every day. So three million people have uh, SETI installed on their computer. That's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's a screensaver that you install, and it analyzes radio waves, trying to pick out alien signals. Um, and nearly another four million people are donating their spare computer cycles to cancer research, and it gives you a pretty screensaver there as well. And uh, then uh, the Large Hadron Collider and its search for the Higgs boson or God particle had its all, also had its own Engadget live blog when it launched back on the 30th of March 2010. See, that's my, that's my scale of importance, whether or not it has an Engadget live blog. <laughs> but um, anyway, since then, that uh, Large Hadron Collider has made the headline news numerous times, not just in popular mechanics and uh, beyond 2000 or what have you, but on Oprah the BBC, and probably most importantly, on celebrity gossip Twitter feeds. Um, so Electronica tweeted, come on Higgs boson, if Ricky Martin can come out, you can do it too. Anyways, uh, the point that I'm making <laughs> is that these days we have a huge appetite for science and technology that is demanding better representations of science and tech in mainstream culture, most notably here Breaking Bad. Um, and while you might expect Walter White to be our vehicle into the world of science, I think it's Jesse Pinkman. He's a disenfranchised suburban kid, born to be an artist, but ends up cooking meth somehow. And on a side note, don't be fooled into thinking that cooking meth is really sciencey. I've been doing my research on this, and it's actually, it's actually quite traumatic to research meth, but I won't go into that. <laughs> um, one real-life Albuquerque police manager goes, if you can bake chocolate chip cookies you can cook meth. 
Anyway, that's how easy it is. Uh, Jesse failed high school chemistry, and it's pretty obvious his meth meth cooking hasn't really taught him much since then. However, once Walt teaches Jesse how to cook meth properly, his whole attitude changes. I really wish that uh, Badger was on this panel. I think, <laughs> I think he's the coolest guy in the series. Um, anyway, so take this scene, and you can actually uh, compare it with the first time that uh, Walt and Jesse cooked together. And it was Jesse doing all the stuff that Badger was doing in that clip, like uh, spinning around on the chair and just completely screwing around, being a disruptive kid, essentially. Um, but after working with Walt, as uh, is shown in this scene here, he probably wouldn't fail high school chemistry now. He starts taking science seriously, I guess is one way to say it. But to rephrase that, I think that he starts to understand and actually love science. So um, the next clip that uh, I want to show is probably not the best, like the most accurate science in Breaking Bad. However, I think it really demonstrates that uh, Jesse's imagination, like his audience, has really been uh, set alight. So this is actually one of the Breaking Bad minisodes that uh, uh, I'm going to show next. 
one dude took a stand with the world against him, facing the black death, yo. Use brain to fight back. Jesse had the time to animate all that. <laughs> well, it takes a long time, I can attest to that. But uh, anyway, cheesy as it may be, uh, the enthusiasm and energy in that clip is a long way off the sort of old, duff, cynical Hank, essentially, the, and the joke that he tells on Walt's 50th birthday, where he says to Walt, you've got a brain the size of Wisconsin, but we won't hold that against you. Um, 
Anyway, what I think is super special about this short film is that it shows science and pop culture really coming together and uh, making room for whole people. Engineers are cool, artists are cool, and you don't have to choose to be one or the other. You can be both. And I'm so pleased to say that this extremely positive message is not a lone voice, but a, a reflection of what's happening outside TV land. Um, so not just in Obama's speech, but uh, on a personal note, back in 2001, I was working at a research lab called the MIT Media Lab. And one day, a fellow named Dean Kamen showed up, showed up to give a talk. Um, I thought he was going to be talking about his recently unveiled like, media hype machine, which was codenamed Project Ginger, Ginger and later known as the Segway Personal Transporter. It's that sort of, uh, it's the two-wheel sort of scooter that you see theme park police riding around. Anyway, um, I had expected to like, applaud this newest invention and just sort of see him zipping around the lecture theater for a while. Um, it, I expected a pretty entertaining thing, but... Uh, but the lecture and the presentation that he gave was actually a million times cooler. Um, and he introduced uh, this.
put those people and ideas in front of these kids, you'll change where they put their time and attention, and you'll change the outcome. You'll change what they'll be when they're 17. A few of these CEOs said, David, what are you going to do that will make kids more passionate about science or engineering? I said, let's steal from the playbook of sports. Let's create a sporting event. Um, so, it may still have a way to come uh, in terms of the way that it uh, represents itself, but today, FIRST involves about 150,000 students from the ages of 6 to 18 years old across the entire world. It's predominantly in the U.S., but it, it does have uh, places all over Asia and Europe as well. Um, it's really heavily funded by giant engineering companies and government organizations, so it's not actually just for rich white kids either. Um, it's informally called the Super Bowl of Smarts, and the first final is actually packing out Atlanta, Georgia's 72,000-seat arena annually. So that's the audience that's going to the final and everything, and it's actually growing quite quickly. So anyway, what does this all have to do with Breaking Bad? Uh, very little, directly. Um, but in 100 years' time, I think we'll be looking back at things like first, at the Large Hadron Collider, the new 11-inch MacBook Air, and uh, Breaking Bad as the beginning of a golden age. And what do they all have in common? They capture our hearts and minds without denying their technological roots. So on that note, I'd like to give the final words of my talk to Jesse Pinkman and Mr. Walter White. going to hand over to uh, Dave Sermon uh, to do his bit. And yes, yeah, science. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So from the science kid to the art kid uh, in the room. Um, my uh, talk today, um, I've given it a tentative title, Hiding in Plain Sight. What that's meant to evoke um, for those of you that have seen the series is this, um, the duality that exists throughout the series, this sense that uh, Walter White, in his kind of day-to-day -day experience, is a teacher and a husband and a father, and yet simultaneously he's a meth cook and a murderer, and uh, you know he drives through red lights and he does all this kind of crazy stuff. So hiding in plain sight evokes the the kind of double. Uh, layer that seems to exist in Breaking Bad, this sense that there's a surface and yet simultaneously there's something bubbling away underneath. Okay? It also refers to what I'm going to be talking about today, which is the sense that it is absolutely the quintessential 2010 series of choice for consumers of the HBO quality television phenomena that Esther defined so eloquently earlier on. And yet, 
as it sits in the kind of prime position to be the show of choice, it has a lot of sophisticated historical um, kind of uh, complexity at work under the bonnet. As you watch Breaking Bad, you can't help but notice the play of cinematic and artistic and cultural references working away constantly. It doesn't so much um, function as a period piece, as you would see in Mad Men and so on, or Deadwood, um, although at times when you're watching Breaking Bad, it does feel like it's almost set in the 80s or something, the kind of the, the faded kind of like Vimura wallpaper and kind of horrible shagpile carpet in their home and so on. It's a contemporary work, and yet um, uh, it has this kind of like um, heritage of other art and other um, media kind of working away within it. So today I'm going to focus on photography. Um, I had initially planned to talk about the cinematic and filmic references, but anybody who has seen the kind of, you know, the dominant uh, cinema of, you know, the sort of late 70s, 80s, 90s and so on can see the kind of um, the gangster movie and the Western and so on operating in Breaking Bad. So today I'm going to focus on photography because it's not often that we talk about television in relation to photography and Breaking Bad is unique in that it offers um, a connection between those two worlds. It offers that connection because um, as a series it's set in Albuquerque in, um, in the kind of far New Mexico side of the American South and the American South has a very specific photographic heritage which I'm going to be exploring today. So in season three of Breaking Bad, we see this image. Not the image that we're looking at and in terms of the painting, but the image of Walt looking at the painting. And it's held for long enough in, this, um, in one of the opening episodes of season three for it to be a significant moment. We're looking at Walt looking at a landscape... And it's not just any landscape, it's a very particular landscape that fits into an image of America that we're all accustomed with. It's the, the kind of rolling plain and the red and blue of the hills and the notion of the frontier, the kind of endless space of America. But at this point in the series, for Walter, this is a very loaded space. It's not a neutral idyll, it's not a symbol of America it's everything that haunts him. He's buried guns and bodies in that space. He's, um, you know, he's disappeared into that space for days on end and abandoned his family. It represents the kind of the reality of his nightmare, the counterpoint to his everyday life. That desert is loaded with meaning, loaded with meanings that have come out of the rolling narrative as it kind of like rumbles along. It's a space that also unpacks the hidden meanings of his, ne- of his code name, Heisenberg. Heisenberg, um, the, the term refers to that, to the notion that um, you can't study something without being changed, you can't study something without um, inherently changing the thing that you study. And throughout the series, Walt, who is this upstanding citizen who considers himself a good guy um, in the course of his kind of criminal acts and uh, involvement in the mess circuit and so on, is slowly corrupted and changed in himself. Heisenberg evokes that sense that he can't be changed. He's not different from 
the thing that he interacts with. And in, look, in watching him look at this painting, you can't help but assume in his mind, all, you know, he's, he's kind of furiously thinking about every um, different element that's in play in his life at that given moment. It's all of the kind of impact of his activity suddenly brought to bear in a moment of reflection. This landscape crops up time and time again, not just as a painting, not just as a representation on a wall, but as the actual setting, the landscape that we're looking at. Throughout the series, we see these intensely tinted scenes of kind of the, of the New Mexico landscape. If you look at the clouds and the landscape, we're not looking at a kind of neutral photograph of a scene. We're looking at an intensely constructed, deliberate depiction of the American landscape. Um, this, the, the kind of yellow tinting that, when you watch this series, implies this kind of intense searing light. When we look at these images as stills, it's almost as though they're sepia images. They're images from another time. They're kind of um, a historic image of a place that you know, somehow is still alive today. As you watch... Um, season one through to season three, we constantly return to this landscape and it becomes the, the basis for all other activity. The landscape is always there. And even, in, even when we're in the suburbs where most of the story unfolds, we're constantly keeping in mind this backdrop, the kind of the desert of the landscape which kind of uh, exists around the town of Albuquerque where all the sins of the city are kind of like dissolved and diluted into that kind of like infinite space. This particular depiction of space that we're looking at here isn't unique to Breaking Bad and it's not unique um, in the films that uh, the series constantly evoke. It comes back to most significantly, the photography of Ansel Adams. Uh, Ansel Adams is a North American pioneer photographer. He really codified and pinned down the art of black and white photography within the North American idiom. And his main subject that he um, continually returned to was the North American landscape. In the early 20th century, Ansel Adams pinned down a number of iconic depictions of the American landscape that would come to form the fundamental language of, of cinema when cinema goes out into this desert, the desert of Albuquerque, the deserts of North America. Ansel Adams essentially establishes the code by which we're going to continually understand that desert through every iteration, through every film and subsequent photograph and painting. Okay. So the, the desert represents the space that all the mistakes that emerge through the course of Breaking Bad are lost into, and the depiction of that desert relies heavily on a kind of photographic, uh, kind of a photo photographic code that's established at the beginning of the 20th century by practitioners like uh, Stieglitz and Ansel Adams and their kind of immediate group. Okay. So Ansel Adams and the language of photography that he establishes in the early 20th century really um, 
give us the language that we see in cinema and the, the language that we see in the Western and so on. And that's why I didn't want to talk about, you know, I could sit here and talk about the searchers and show you images of the American West and then situate the gangster drama within the searchers. But that isn't actually true to the material in many ways. By talking about photography, you're talking about artists who live and die within the American South and within the context of New Mexico. And it's much more interesting for us to look at photographers because they form the basis for this visual language of the kind of North American South. Okay, so... The first person that we're going to talk about is William Eggleston. Okay. William Eggleston came to prominence in the world of art photography in 1976 when his work was featured in the Museum of London Art's first one-man exhibition of colored photographs. He was 37 years old. In the accompanying book, William Eggleston's Guide, distilled the exhibition's 75 pictures to 48 and included an essay by the show's curator, John Tchaikovsky. This is the portrait of Eggleston that appeared on the last page of the guide, a photo that might fairly be captioned. William Edelston, not your standard tortured artist type. Here's Bill Tchaikovsky at the opening. With his cousin, photographer Mama Skyler, Bill lighting his mother's cigarette. Bill's son, William Jr., nine years old at the time. They were visiting from Memphis, where Edelston lived, and still lives with his wife, Rosa, who managed to elude the official photographer. Thank you. 
gift is that it's fairly impossible to spend time with these pictures without experiencing a kind of contagious, recharged awareness of the richness of the visible world. Extended exposure to these photos is likely to recondition the way you see, the way you think about seeing. Everything is worth looking at, the pictures say, and worth photographing. A modest conviction that Nicholson translates into a disarmingly intimate survey Western civilization in the late 20th century, crossfading into the 21st. A civilization that's haunted and hopeful, decaying, but in a constant state of becoming. Eggleston himself may be the last person on earth to speak of this, but the titles he's given his books tend to tip his hand. Election Eve, The Democratic Forest, Morals of Vision. For all that, or accordingly, human beings tend to get crowded out of Eggleston's photos. What you get is a democracy of objects, natural and manufactured, things for sale, things without apparent value, and things beyond price. Gradually, you might bear in upon you that Eggleston's true subject, simply and inexhaustibly, is the nature of perception. So the predicament of Heisenberg that I defined earlier on is one in which um, an upstanding man involves himself in a criminal underworld and arrogantly believes in the first instance that he can do so and remain unchanged. And yet, through the course of the narrative, he gets pulled in, his morality is compromised, and suddenly those two worlds blend together. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about photography today is that photography faces the same dilemma. Critical distance is crucial to the function of photography, and particularly documentary photography. This idea of the objective uh, eye of the camera, the machine eye of the camera, being manipulated by the machine mind of the objective photographer. And yet, looking at Eggleston's photographs, we have this sense of vertigo. As we look at these everyday objects, we're pulled into them and we're drawn into them. We're drawn into the kind of contemporary mythology of the South and we're drawn into the kind of haunted world of pop culture and derelict shots and signs and motifs and so on. So the photographer and their experience echoes in many respects the experience of Heisenberg and the experience of Walter White within the course of the narrative. So William Eggleston, working as a photographer throughout the 60s, publishes in around 1976 at the Museum of Modern Art his first kind of landmark show of colour photography. And it really um, is like a freight train kind of hammering into the established status quo of black and white art photography that had been defined by Ansel Adams and his contemporaries. Uh, William Eggleston's work, as much as it's unpopular with the Academy and unpopular with um, the critical culture of the time, um, for the young audiences of students and so on coming into this space, it's a revolution. It absolutely kind of liberates their minds to think in new ways about uh, working uh, with photography. When we look at Breaking Bad as a 
as a kind of work of cinematography, we're struck by the incredible inventiveness of the composition of the shots that go into um, the three series. Um, Breaking Bad um, has been described by Vince Gilligan and his team of writers as a kind of snowballing process whereby they get together and they don't really know where the writing is going and from episode to episode they're allowing the characters to have some kind of agency and autonomy they just kind of you know go through the go through the story writing process with a strong sense that the characters will dictate through the course of the series their own route and their own path in many respects the photography of the show acts as the anchor to that kind of um, freeform process of writing as, as the episodes are committed to uh, film and broadcast, um, as a fan of the show and watching the show, I was constantly being struck by the heritage that goes into the cinematography of the show. What we're watching is uh, the photography of Eggleston and his, and his contemporaries coming to life and acquiring the kind of special ironies that can only exist in television. As we go through the series, we're struck by compositions such as this. This is the moment um, in season three where Walt and Jesse are locked in the, in the mobile meth lab and we're in this car yard. There are moments in the, in the television series like this where you're almost looking into a kind of Egglestonian world. You're looking at the derelict, hopeless aspects of America and yet nested within that, there are these incredible... Uh, narratives taking place right beneath your nose, you know, hidden in plain sight, these narratives are taking place. As I said just a second ago, the Breaking Bad is strongly twinged with a strong sense of visual irony and a strong sense of the kind of manipulation of those icons of America. And ab- above um, Sol Goodman's uh, offices, you have this inflatable uh, Statue of Liberty, which kind of like limply flails around in the kind of desert wind. Um, and it's something that um, I haven't got the plate here, but. Um, that William Eggleston constantly returns to, these kind of derelict um, advertisements for stores that take the form of figures like this, so a giant chicken or a Statue of Liberty. Very often, the ambition to have something up there supersedes the engineering of the thing itself. So it will be bent and crooked or falling apart and so on. And in that, it kind of embodies the kind of derelict ambitions of the people that commissioned it. So one of, the, one of the striking correspondences between Eggleston's work and the cinematography of Breaking Bad is in the characterization of Breaking Bad, which I think Esther was talking about, there's, there's this strong sense of having um, an opportunity to see from multiple characters' perspectives. And one of the things that many people have spoken about in Breaking Bad is that in season two, we kind of don't really have much of Walt's perspective. We certainly see Skylar's emotions being mapped out, and we see Hank's emotions being mapped out. And Walt becomes a kind of... Um, uh, he gets benched, in effect by the strong agenda of the other characters. And, in, and that's reflected in the cinematography. We have these very, very striking compositions, such as this, where you see um, one, 
or more characters figured into the same composition, and focus is used to kind of emphasise the competing emotional agendas of all those characters. Here we see the kind of police car boxing in the mobile meth lab. So I want to move on now to um, the next stage in our kind of investigation into the sort of photography that underpins Breaking Bad. We can kind of see it as a zooming in that's taking place. If we think of the landscape of Breaking Bad as being inspired by Ansel Adams and Ajay and Stieglitz and that whole group of kind of classic North American photographers who um, defined the American imagination for all of those kids that grew up in you know, central New York and in the big urban spaces who never saw the American frontier, um, that, that imagery is, was defined by those photographers and subsequent to that, the, the filmmakers that were inspired by them. Um, Steve, uh, Eggleston, we see urban spaces, we see objects. Uh, we don't necessarily see people, but we see, we see the kind of um, the, the paraphernalia of an American life. What I want to do now is talk about two photographers, Sophie Cal and Nan Golden, where we suddenly come to grips with the people involved. We've zoomed in and we're engaging with the people. In Breaking Bad, there's a particular moment, um, and this is a still from that moment, where um, Hank Schrader is trailing the blue meth, which is the kind of cookie cum cookie crumb trail which always leads back to Jesse Pinkman and to Walter Wyatt's their distinguished product and it leads him to this service station which is you know a quintessential Eggleston service station you know, slightly derelict in primary colors and he realizes that there's an ATM and that the ATM contains a camera and it seems like an incongruous kind of sort of almost like deus ex machina moment within the plot that they would write in this kind of like ATM that has a really crystal clear camera um, that's fully functioning that will enable you to kind of see who is selling the crystal meth. And it's a really kind of incongruous moment. I want to compare it to the work of the photographer Sophie Cal. Okay. This was in Minneapolis. Their photos I took were bank security videos. Yeah. I became friends with a private detective who had these cassettes of people that drawn money from the automated terrorists. They were done with time lapse filming. One image per second, I think. You see people come in to withdraw money, and they're all smiles. And little by little during the whole procedure, and when the money comes out, their faces change completely. What I like about these photos is that there are people alone with their money. It's almost like being in a confessional box. So I got a hold of these cassettes, and I took Polaroids of them. And this was the first time that I had the pictures, but no ideas. All these people in the dark, their faces and outlines. And I didn't know how to use them. Usually I have the idea and then the pictures. But this time, it was the other way around. What 
What's interesting about Sophie Cowell's description there is it echoes some of the sentiments that Vince Gilligan has, again, about the writing process, that they're writing and they're thinking subsequent to the writing. They're kind of chasing their own tails, trying to kind of find the narrative. So... For me, it struck me that in the work of Sophie Cowell, you have this, this body of work that she did with the recordings that come from these ATMs. And how that functions for Sophie Cowell is that it becomes a way of producing a kind of anonymous character study where we, from a particular and very special vantage point, we're able to see the the uh, people in question in a very unguarded way because people don't necessarily think about the fact that they're being filmed, their expressions are unguarded and they're emotionally transparent. Within the context of Breaking Bad, this hidden camera that exists enables a, is another kind of reinforcement of the point I made previously that we're seeing from many numerous vantage points And it gives this sensation as a consumer of Breaking Bad of being in full possession of the facts and actually ahead of the curve in many respects. We're we're always kind of like um, one step ahead of all of the characters. And I think this is quite intentional within Breaking Bad because there are so many character narratives in play that for it to be a a kind of work, an entertaining uh, experience, the writers have to position us just slightly ahead of the kind of... Um, the pack, as it were. So Breaking Bad, at the core of Breaking Bad, there are a series of relationships. There are a series of interactions between people. And Breaking Bad is striking in that it it, um, shows a substantial amount of imagery connected to drug use and kind of um, all of the effects of drug use in the experience of those characters. It creates these um, uh, initial dichotomies which turn out to be false dichotomies between the supposed idyll of suburban married life versus the kind of lost experience of Jesse Pinkman and his, and his girlfriend Jane and his other later girlfriend, which are much more reflective of the kind of lower end of society. And this, to me, uh, resonated strongly with the work of two photographers that I'll talk about today, Nan Golden and then later Larry Clark. Okay, I'm just going to show a short video of Nan Golden just to establish her if you don't know who she is. And some of them are Catholic art. And 
it was sort of my good luck sign. The name of the hospital was embossed on the um, pillowcase, so you can tell if you look closely that I'm in a hospital. And it was a period of a lot of fear and, and sort of crisis of identity. Nothing was familiar. So I had lived 15 years in utter darkness. I had never gone out during the day. So all of a sudden I was living in this light. And I didn't know at that time that light affected the color film. I sincerely didn't know that. So the work became all about the light and the, both metaphorically and, and literally about coming out of darkness into light. And then a year and a half later, I was strong enough to move back to New York. And I was living with a young woman who had been my lover previously named Siobhan. And I photographed her every day. And that became almost a form of lovemaking. It was like a caress. And she would be hurt if I didn't photograph her. And that was part of getting to know how close I could get to another person without drugs. So if we come back to that Heisenberg principle again, in the work of Nan Goldin, we can see that any objectivity or distance for the, on the, from the position of the photographer is completely erased, that Nan Goldin and her contemporaries, um, all of their work is characterised by a complete possession by the subject. Very often, in the case of Nan Goldin, um, she grew up within a group of people and her photography is an expression of that social group for which she is a part and her work is kind of cherished in the international contemporary art community for opening up to photography that ability to be part of a community and to authentically document a community and yet still produce works which stand out as significant statements about a given community. And so Nan Goldin's um, intimacy and Nan Golden's sensitivity enables us, along with the work of Larry Clark, to look differently at the, at the kinds of narrative that Breaking Bad uh, explores. When you watch Breaking Bad, you're struck by the sensitive way in which the drug-taking and uh, so on are represented. You know, any initial moral outraged reaction is softened and negotiated by the particular way in which that drug taking is shot and delivered to us on the screen. These are just the Im images that come from the piece that I just showed you, but Nan Golden's photography um, with its kind of soft flash and its um, eccentric composition and focus on actions rather than personalities and then personalities rather than actions, endlessly flip-flopping between those two kind of positions. Um, it establishes in our mind the kind of humanity of the scene, not its kind of monstrous dimension. And that's something that Breaking Bad trades on. Without, it, without the kind of contribution of the likes of Nan Golden and Corrine Day and Larry Clark and and before them, William Eggleston, I think watching Breaking Bad would be, would be almost a kind of impossible act. Breaking Bad wouldn't exist were it not for this kind of material. One of the things that 
the art photographers that I'm talking about today, uh, the one way that you can group them is that they're all colour art photographers, and colour plays a significant role in Breaking Bad. Uh, one of the things you're struck by as you watch the series is the, you know, the lab that Gus builds for Walt. Um, it's not just stainless steel, it's in this kind of searing red. Um, the green of the hospital, the orange of the uh, police station... There are colour signatures being established throughout the series that um, build strong emotional relationships bet- uh, to those locations. We know instantly that we're in the lab, not from the paraphernalia of the lab, but from that striking kind of red colour that hits you. So, along with... Um, Nan Goldin and William Eggleston, um, all of whom were exhibiting in this incredibly um, dense period of time, within, the, within five years or, or so of each other, they're all kind of having exhibitions of their work. Larry Clark is probably the most um, uh, immediately successful figure from that group. And with his first book, Tulsa, um, he really establishes this um, uh, reclamation of drug-taking within the Uh, content of art photography. Um, Tulsa um, is a book that, in the title of which he was um, trying to draw attention to the Gene Pitney song, uh, 24 Hours from Tulsa, which tells the story of the kind of, um, you know, the, the, you know, the kind of vital, vibrant life of Tulsa. And Larry Clark, as a child of Tulsa who had grown up in that city, wanted to create a piece of work in the early 70s that to his eye, accurately described that space as a kind of um, a, a, a no-hope city where the youth of that city were kind of um, naturally drawn to drugs and to sex and to kind of illicit behaviour because it gave character and personality to their lives and that the, the kind of prevailing uh, culture of a kind of America in decline that, w- that their parents were part of seemed to offer nothing to the children of that age. And so it's in Larry Clark's photography, in the kind of um, unrelenting series of photographs that you see in Tulsa, that we have first contact with this imagery of drug-taking that uh, holds no, pulls no punches in terms of showing you explicit um, detail of you know, intravenous drug-taking and so on, and yet at the same time uh, composes those images with a sensitivity and a delicacy that are unmatched at the time, and certainly um, uh, complicate the issue of drug taking. More recently, uh, we can think about, um, in, in one very striking link to Breaking Bad, the 2001 uh, Larry Clark film Bully, uh, which tells the story of Bobby Kent, who was a, a kind of um, uh, young guy, a, a bully uh, within a community who was controversially killed by his friends. Uh, the Larry Clark film tells the real-life story, um, uh, albeit with Larry Clark embellishments, um, of uh, the character Marty Puccio, who uh, is the best friend of Bobby Kent, but nonetheless is instrumental in his murder. Uh, the character Ma- uh, Marty... Uh, the, the actor... The character Marty, Marty Puccio, rather, played by Brad Renfro here, 
Um, as you watch Bully, you're struck by how much Jesse Pinkman's character within the context of Breaking Bad correlates to this character of Marty Puccio as someone who is endlessly uh, wounded by the actions of others that, um, contrary to uh, concepts of American masculinity, he never quite toughens up. As, a, as something is done to him, his response is never to kind of grow stronger and more resilient. He's such an intensely sensitive soul that he's endlessly wounded and re-wounded by every action until at the, in the culmination of the film Bully, he goes on to murder uh, Bobby even down to the fact of the, the endlessly black eye that, um, that um, Jesse has. We see the same in uh, the character of Marty in the film. One uh, quite tragic anecdote is that Brad Renfro died of a heroin overdose um, not long after the making of Bully, um, uh, so, you know, in a kind of like tragic correlation between the two characters. And here we can see um, a kind of typical um, Larry Clark composition of the character. On the surface, you know, it's a kind of, you know, Larry Clark, you know, you know the critics would say a kind of exploitative, um, homoerotic image of a young man, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But in the context of the film, and certainly comparing it to Jesse, a kind of um, an incredibly sort of sensitive depiction of a, of a kind of wounded young man. And then finally, in the kind of um, finale of Bully, we see the younger brother who's been core to the narrative as a kind of silent agent of the film Bully, um, spectating his brother being taken away for the murder of Bobby Kent. And we see with, a, with, a typical, with the irony that you would, you would find in the likes of Eggleston and Larry Clark's other photography, um, him wearing this kind of like um, uh, don't do drugs T-shirt. So Breaking Bad, as it works toward the end of season three, culminates in this incredible way where all of the photographic material that I've been talking about today, the the landscapes and the locations and the characters, it all comes together and you end up with moments within the third season like this um, where we see Jesse with this kind of like surrogate family that he temporarily adopts within the narrative coming together for a meal. And it kind of recalls the... Um, the dinner scene of, of Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66, where we're positioned as a kind of invisible fourth member at the table. Um, in, its com- in its composition in the, and in the sophistication of, of its references, there's a whole range of imagery in season three of Breaking Bad, which, um, if you're interested in photography, really deliver these amazing nuances. And it's interesting to me that um, through the strength of these references, Breaking Bad can't help but become much more about Jesse than Walt in many respects. That Walt, um, which we understand in the first season to be defined by Jesse, um, the equation is inverted and we're becoming much more focused on Jesse. And Walt beca- kind of acts as this um, foil to Jesse's narrative. Okay? Thanks. <laughs> I think um, uh, hello. I think that's um, a, a really exciting um, point for 
me to go home and start watching all over again with brand new eyes. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you to you all. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? I'll ask you to just put your hand up. We are recording the event, so um, we would like to keep your question. Hey guys, um, I have a question for Ian, which is amongst all of the a, um, yay science utopianism, what about <laughs> the idea that in Breaking Bad, science is often death, be it meth or explosions or whatever, and the more Jesse learns about science, the worse his life gets in a lot of ways, not the better his life gets. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I think, I think you can read it that way. Uh, <laughs> and... But at the same time, like as a viewer, it's, um, you know, the, that's what meth is about. And it's sort of like there's, there's the counterpoint to that where it's like really empowering Walt. Like Walt is at his most empowered and at his bravest when he's in the lab. And so, so I think it's both sides of it are represented. But ultimately, you know, what I'm pleased about, what, what I'm really excited about with uh, Breaking Bad is just how it really represents the whole picture, and you can sort of pull out lots of different stories from it. And you know, in terms of engaging with its audience, it's sort of it's about everybody pulling out the stories that they that they can, and it and sort of uh, letting them do half the work themselves. Um, David, you mentioned the searches, um, and you, was, you said that you didn't want to talk about the kind of the aesthetics of the Western, but um, I was kind of struck quite a lot by the parallel between your, your mention of the searches, just kind of in mm. passing, but with your observation at the end, yeah. between the kind of generational shift that basically yeah. it's now a young person's story, it's kind of the, the story of the older man is now kind of... Yeah. not really relevant anymore. I mean, that's precisely what happens in the searches. Yeah. Without kind of getting too much into aesthetics, just uh, almost thematically or narratively, what, what's your take on the relationship with that kind of heritage? Um, it's really interesting, because, like, like, I could just do the whole... I could have done the whole thing on that. Like, like Breaking Bad, when you, when you take out... Um, when you simmer it down, is very much about generations and um, people moving on and people going through the appropriate stages of their lives. Like, you know, as a baby boomer, Walt looks at... For instance, Elliot, his science partner in college, who has had the kind of like gleaming career and all of the benefits of a, of success, and he and he feels like a failure in relation to um, in relation to Elliot. But then intergenerationally, you know, Walt um, chastises Jesse for not doing something with his life and leading a kind of responsible life and so on. I think you know. Um, as Christopher Frayling says, you know, in the Western, you know, Westerns are all about uh, men and boys, you know, intergenerationally punishing one another for their perceived oversights and neglects and so on. And, like, I think Breaking Bad is, um, for me, it became hardest to watch when I started to focus on the way in which um, Jesse endlessly requests affection and validation from Walt. And Walt, um, in his kind of um, sort of ennui that he's kind of like experiencing, fails to see that, fails to see that that's what Jesse is going for outside of all of the kind of specific detail of the things that they have to do at a given time. And I feel like um, in many respects, like 
in terms of cinematic heritage, you know, Breaking Bad has clear kind of links to the likes of Paris, Texas, and you know, um, even stuff like Buffalo '66 and so on, which is all about fathers and sons. And in that particular set of independent cinema um, examples, there are those strong links to the Western. So that's kind of like a lineage which. Um, I'd like to explore, but as a kind of entirely separate discussion, because I feel like once you start to fixate on the cinematic, it's very hard to create space to talk about the the, the smaller photographic gestures that that I w- that I'm trying to kind of explore. But absolutely, I mean, um, Breaking Bad is a western, you know, in in many respects. You know, it 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 is maybe more of a western than Deadwood in some respects because Deadwood has this kind of like um, this sort of entrepreneurial agenda which dominates over the over the the revenge component you know in Breaking Bad it's almost like it is the west in the sense that someone gets killed and then there's some revenge and someone falls in love and love turns to death and you see this kind of like endless toing and froing Right, I'm going to ask a, a sneaky question too then. Um, to anyone on the panel or in the audience, um, Dave, you were talking about uh, the, the meaning of Heisenberg, and I don't know if it is called the Heisenberg effect, um, and I understood it to be that entering into the game changes the game in itself also. And you were you were talking about how he just does naturally become the baddie by playing that game. But for some reason, the whole reason, the whole time that I've been watching this myself, I've been thinking that Walt is bringing some kind of morality to the drug world, but he's, he's still a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He's killing, he's pushing, he's, you know, manoeuvring. Why do I think that? <laughs> I think I think a lot of it has to do with Brian Cranston as a character actor. Um, he's like intensely lovable, and it's one of it's one of those situations where you kind of um, your affection for him and your affection for um, how he operates is, is almost independent of his actions. You know, when he drives those guys over, it's, you're just kind of like, oh my god, you know, is his Pontiac okay? And it's like, <laughs> you know, like. How's Jesse? The two dead guys. You know, you're like, oh yeah, reverse over them a bit. You know, because just to make sure they're dead. You know, <laughs> but, but also as Dave said, it's you know so much of it is about like fathers and sons, mm-hmm. and you know Walt is ultimately a father, and like the, his screen time with his son is just sort of so, you know, it it almost changes changes it erases everything else that he does and it's sort of like you can look at all the different father and son relationships in it and it's it's funny that like um jesse and his dad seem to have the weakest father-son relationship whereas tuco and his grandfather have this really special bond and they're all like really you know they're all really quite touching to watch and you can really understand those things and so like even though tuco's grandpa's really scary with his bell and stuff but uh you know, I, I still, my heart personally goes out to him. And uh, I think with all the dads in this, you could really, like, strongly relate to it. So maybe Vince Gilligan has dad issues or something. 
Is, I think it, I think the dads thing is important. Like in the UK, I don't know if you had it here. There was um, a series of really significant court cases, um, which were kind of brought together under the banner of Fathers for Justice, mm. wherein um, um, child custody battles, um, the British court system was heavily biased against men, and it was and, and uh, men felt. A number of fathers felt that they were um, unfairly um, deprived access to their children and so on. And it's quite, quite definitive of sort of the first 10 years of the, of the 21st century, you know, these kind of like, it's not just a crisis in the family that we describe as a kind of underlying thing. It's an explicit litigious crisis in the family that's very spectacularly explored. Like in the UK, you had dads dressing up as like Spider-Man and Batman, climbing up construction cranes to then tie a banner that says fathersforjustice.net or something, you know, dressed as, and then chained as Spider-Man to a crane. You know, there's kind of incredibly over-the-top gestures. And like, I feel like fatherhood um, as, ex- as explored in, in Breaking Bad, it touches a contemporary nerve, you know, that, that means that you know, maybe morality and familial bonds, you know, familial bonds kind of win out within this narrative. We don't care so much these, you know, reversing over people's heads and stuff. Because my dad would never do that. And just on the, um, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, I'd say that I think that Walt's actually got um, a kind of ambivalent relation with it because he, it's almost like he is trying to fight against making any effect. Like, um, so the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that that which is observed or the method by which you observe mm. something changes that which is observed. And he's, I reckon, rather than embracing it, and I think the whole time he's trying to, like he does all these amazing things and then he's like, no, 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 everyone back to where you were. Just, it's okay, it's okay, I'm just going to do this thing here. It has all of these effects and he kind of tries to deny that, I think. One um, key thing as well that's implied in the series and it connects to, I, I had the... the enjoyment of watching Joel Schumacher's Falling Down in, uh-huh. in preparation for this talk, which I remember, we remember being really gritty and then you watch it again and it's like the campest film I've ever seen. <laughs> but um, uh, what's striking about that is that there's subtle cues within Breaking Bad, just like well, it's not so subtle in Falling Down, that actually Walt's always been a wild card and yeah. that there are reasons he's not in business with Elliot and you know, there are reasons he is where he is. And, and mm. we're actually, I think, as you're watching the series in full flow, you're quite sensitive to the fact that Walt isn't being changed or corrupted by um, his activity. It's really actually a, a good fit for him, mm. that he fits into that world. Yeah. He starts getting interested in meth even before, uh, even before he knows he has cancer. Like, yeah. I just rewatched season one a couple of days ago, and I was... I had to actually retell myself the entire story because I had it wrong. Uh, like by the time I'd reached season three and got to the end of it, I thought that he was in it because because uh, he, he wanted to just pay for his treatment. But sure enough, no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> when does he get interested in meth? It's like right in the first episode. <laughs> in, like he sees Hank uh, doing a drug is, bust on TV, yeah. and he sees the money, and it's more of it's yeah. more of a money money, and also this sort of um, him working at the at the car wash Um, and it's a pride issue which comes up again with his employment or lack of employment with grey matter how he refuses that job there 
So See, I'd rewritten the history too, and I thought yeah. that the cancer was the first thing to happen. The, the other thing is that I think that once he encounters Gus in, in, at the highest level of the kind of cartel, um, it's, an, it's a confirmation to him that there are men like him yeah. in this space that have honour and have <laughs> a kind of, um, uh, a kind of um, a code of conduct. And I think that, that enables him to kind of operate in that space. But what's revealed is that, um, got, you know, that, that Walt is kind of intensely... He's operating within a kind of intense meritocracy where it's actually about his performance as a chemist above and beyond any morality. And we see that in his relationship to Gail. Is it Gail? The, yeah. the, the assistant guy and so on. It's all about the virtuoso chemist uh, above, and, and virtuoso businessman and strategist above and beyond anything else, really. I'm done hogging the mic. How many people here have seen Series 3? I'd be interested to know. Would you like to talk about it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what happens at the end of Season 3? I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't. Any more questions of the audience to the panel? Panel to the audience. How many people are focusing more, like, are connecting to Jesse's narrative uh, quite strongly? I just, I'm curious about that because, like, when I watch it, it's like Jesse. You know, I'm more, I'm I'm rooting for Jesse, and I'm hoping he's okay much more than Walt. I kind of don't care what happens to Walt anymore. Is anyone rooting <laughs> for Skylar? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just me. It's just me. It's some weird personal thing that's going on here. What's with all the Skylar hate? This is what I want to know. Why? Well, she's awful. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's a little passive-aggressive, you've got to admit. But the men are aggressive-aggressive. Yeah. You don't mind that. Good call, Martin. I think I it's because she has sex with that ultra-grey man. <laughs> <laughs> the Benecki guy. I was talking about Bad this, um, about Skylar, because we, we are always wondering why does everyone... Or why do I dislike yeah, Skylar? And know so many people that do also dislike Skylar and then we started talking about is it a deeper issue that the writers can't write good women and there's an example is that Skylar when she is so heavily pregnant is still walking around in high heel shoes (laughs) and you know maybe we only have this handful of characters that can, or a handful of women that we can see and we have you know the passive aggressive naggy wife and we have um, the, the other uh, woman that I can think of is the prostitute that Jesse pays off with drugs to go and you know yeah, Wendy. cover for him and who are the other women that we are seeing Hank's wife Marie. But, but there's... I, think she, I think she's an excellent character but also a little on the naggy side but then there's Jane as well, and she's a Jane. terrific character. Yeah. Like, and it is interesting, actually, when you like watch any of the extras or all the, you know, all the stuff that's around, the writers and Vince Gilligan don't have that impression at all. They mm. just don't. So, and I think that is kind of interesting, because I know that when we started talking about it, that was the first thing that we both said. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, you have to it's kind of, well, I suppose, like, that question mm. sort of prompted is... Why, yeah, why is that? But 
Also, the relationship between Skylar and Walt. I feel no love or chemistry between them on the screen at all. So I find it really difficult to sympathise with Skylar or understand why Walt is always trying... You know, he's he's doing this thing for his family, he's doing it for his family, but it never looks like he's doing it for his family. I think that's quite intentional. There's lots of explicit reference to Skylar being substantially younger than him and that um, uh, there's definitely a kind of black... um, a black comedy to any of their explorations of their of their relationship and a slight tragic element like when he's recounting how they met she starts crying because he's dying of lung cancer and it leads to this really peculiar scene where the all, they all insist that he describe his cancer while the son is sitting there mm. you know and it's this like i think um you know the kind of um the link between Skylar and Walt from the beginning is already a tenuous one, and the writers are piling up pressure on that link, pushing it to the point of, uh, of kind of um, breakage. You know, it's it, when the notion that they have a good marriage is, is highly dependent on this kind of ideology of the suburban family unit that's being evoked. It's not actually there mm. in the plot, as it were. You know, so yeah, it's an it's an interesting dynamic that they have. It's like what? the talking pillow. <laughs> yeah. the talking pillow. Yeah. Yeah. Talking talking uh, crack pipe. <laughs> um, shall we say thank you for this evening to uh, Dr. Esther Milne, David Sermon? and to Ian Goldstone. Thank you, and thank you to the audience for coming and to Dogs Up in the Bio Box. Thank you so much.